Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. G'day Space Junkies, welcome to the Space Junk Podcast and today I'm joined by Dr. Audra Wolfe, a writer and science historian. Her work specifically focuses on the role of science during the Cold War, a period when science held a special place in maintaining and projecting state power. Her book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science, first released in 2018 and now being released in paperback, very excitingly, also in Australia, looks at the power of the idea of science. What does it mean to think of science as apolitical, as objective, as separate from state institutions during an era of total ideological warfare? How did Cold War warriors hope to use these ideas to sway potential allies to their side? How do these Cold War era ideas about apolitical science continue to influence our thinking about the appropriate role for science in public life today. Audra and I met in 2018 in Seattle at the History of Science Society meeting. And I was thrilled that she's agreed to join me on the podcast and talk about her book, Freedom's Laboratory. This is a book that explores in detail a story of US and Soviet science relations during the Cold War by tracing carefully the paths of individuals and ideas rather than by drawing sweeping lines across a canvas, which makes it an incredibly fascinating book to read and to discuss. So let's begin. Audra, how are you? I think I'm as well as I can be for uh, 2020, and that's all one can really say. So I'm, I'm happy to be joining you here today. Fantastic. So I'd like to jump in straight away because I know we don't have a lot of time, and I was hoping you could first set the scene for us and tell us What's the backdrop on which you're telling this story? What's at stake here in the war of ideologies between the US and the Soviet Union? So both the United States and the Soviet Union uh, saw the Cold War as this total ideological conflict between uh, liberal democracy on the one hand and communism on the other. Um, and one thing that really constrained the way that they were carrying out this, this conflict was the existence of nuclear weapons. So after 1949, of course, both the United States and the Soviet Union had atomic weapons and the potential to uh, destroy each other only got worse as time went on. So in terms of the Cold War, this really uh, played out in two separate ways. On the one hand, you had um, the, the the two countries really uh, fighting through a series of extraordinarily violent and destructive uh, proxy wars uh, that took place mainly in the decolonizing world. But on the other hand, you had uh, this enormous commitment to psychological warfare and economic warfare and political warfare, basically conducting war uh, via means short of life bullets. Um, and that really meant projecting ideas about uh, each country's respective ways of life. And because science was part of those ways of life, science really became part of these programs in some um, unexpected and I think poorly understood ways. Well, let's talk then about the role of science in cultural and scientific diplomacy. What do we mean when we talk about cultural diplomacy? 
Well, cultural diplomacy is a term that uh, diplomatic historians tend to use more than other groups. In, uh, among professional diplomats, sometimes you'll hear the word public diplomacy. Uh, the boundaries between public diplomacy and cultural diplomacy are kind of murky, uh, but both of them really involve ideas about uh, uh, bringing uh, allies, potential allies, possibly foes, into your court by promoting various ideas about your way of life. Some of the more famous ones um, on the American side would be things like uh, uh, the State Department's jazz tours in Africa, or uh, the CIA's uh, use, of, the CIA's promotion of modern art in Europe in the 1950s. Um, and on the Soviet side, you know, some of the way, some of these world fair issues, if you think of the, uh, the kitchen debate, the kitchen debate was kind of a classic moment of uh, cultural diplomacy, of thinking about um, what households look like and how people were living their daily lives in these, in these different countries. So science became part of this and the United States was very deeply invested in the notion of um, promoting a particularly American way of doing science. Um, and there's a lot of details in it, but they really um, coalesce around ideas of freedom. Uh, that scientists have freedom of thought, scientists have freedom of movement, ideas are free to move around. Um, science and, and ideas, science knows no borders, these kinds of ideas. Science should be uh, driven by uh, basic disciplinary interests as opposed to uh, kind of technological ideas. All of these ideas became part of the package that the United States was uh, trying to promote around the world as part of its cultural diplomacy programs. And I want to ask you to talk more in depth about these scientists, because many of them were very senior, very respected in their fields and ended up acting as intelligence assets for the CIA, some you know, formally, some unknowingly. But let's start from the CIA's perspective. Why would they be interested in recruiting scientists? Right, well, you know, one important thing to understand about this is that the CIA was coming into existence at almost exactly the same time that these psychological warfare battles were heating up. And uh, this had a few different effects. It, it, among other things, it meant that from the very beginning, the CIA was very interested in uh, promoting um, kind of covert cultural diplomacy at the same time that it was trying to learn how to gather scientific intelligence, really all kinds of intelligence, but that it was trying to learn how to gather uh, scientific intelligence for the first time. So one of my favorite documents in writing this book is something called the Berkner Report. It has the, the formal name of uh, science and foreign relations, and it was uh, released in 1950. And the concept of the Berkner Report was that um, the United States should really integrate science into all of its foreign relations. It should have science attaches located in embassies. Um, it should think about uh, scientific goals as part of national foreign policy goals. The way that this loops back into scientific intelligence is the Berkner Report has a brilliant realization at its heart. And that was that the United States could, if the United States could promote ideas of scientific collaboration and scientific cooperation, that it could both further its cultural values by showing to the rest of the world, hey, um, ideas are, scientists are free to travel, ideas are free to travel, we love cooperation, we will help you, we will, we will do basic science. And at the same time, that that was, that this is actually, if you hold the most power in a global system, or one of the, if you are one of the most powerful actors in a global system, um, hosting events where scientists can mix and mingle and speak freely is actually one of the best possible ways to gather scientific intelligence. Because of course, not all scientific intelligence uh, involves secrets. 
Sometimes it involves secrets, but often it involves uh, what we now usually call um, open source intelligence. So it might be things like the numbers of PhDs in your country, or the names of the 10 leading scientists in a given field, or the specialties that your researchers are really good at. These are exactly the kinds of things that gossiping scientists share when they get together at meetings. And so the United States basically put together this plan that says we're really going to support international scientific cooperation programs throughout the 1950s. And we're going to do this both to further American values and to maybe do a little light scientific intelligence collection. And this will work best if some of the scientists involved don't even understand that that's what's happening because they will act more naturally. They will not fall under suspicion. Uh, they won't be at risk to their person. Um, so for this to work, you need to send out senior scientists because uh, anybody else might fall under suspicion. But if you send out senior scientists who are clearly um, out there doing their scientific research, doing their scientific networking, when they come back to the United States, they could then be debriefed and that information could be passed along to, this, to uh, the CIA. And so this was, this was the United States' extraordinarily complicated way that it, that it hoped to gather scientific intelligence in the early 1950s. Eventually they went to more traditional scientific intelligence operations through the CIA, but it's this moment where these ideas about scientific freedom were really being harnessed to these very specific um, kind of intelligence collections goals in a fascinating way. Can we look at a little bit more detail at what this looks like for someone who's say a senior scientist in their field, they receive an invitation to attend a prestigious international conference or, you know, maybe, maybe suddenly they receive a bunch of funding for their laboratory. They think, brilliant, they finally realized I'm a wonderful scientist. But perhaps they don't realize that by going to this conference and by speaking to these people, they are unwittingly providing information back to their government. How does that actually work? I mean, it, it runs against the images we see in James Bond and so on of, you know, these, these super spies who are spies by career. This is, this is a very sneaky approach and, and one that I think is really very interesting. Yes, it's not only sneaky, but it's complicated because, of course, uh, the United States government didn't necessarily know which scientists were going abroad. Uh, so one way that it was put into practice was something called the ASTA program, the American Scientist Traveling Abroad program. The idea was in 1950 that the National Academies of Science could uh, provide help in advance and advice for scientists who were traveling abroad. And so uh, they could basically provide them with maybe some travel information or they could uh, help them out when you got to Paris, uh, that, that the scientists could check in with the attache at the embassy office. So say you are a biologist. Biologists were particularly good at this because they were not under any suspicion for atomic secrets. Uh, physicists were a little dicey for this, for this purpose. But if you were a scientist, say you, would, uh, you got an invitation to go to France, um, you might check in with a program director at the National Academies and say, hey, I'm going to France. Um, and they would say, wonderful, we will be as helpful as, you, as we can be. In the meantime, they put his name into a little, basically a postcard that was then being circulated to a bunch of government agencies. And then when he came back, the National Academies would say, hey, how was your trip? Who did you meet? Where did you go? What kinds of things did you hear? And they would just ask um, extraordinarily nosy questions. Now, whether the scientists understood that this is intelligence collection or not, 
um, is a little hard to say. Most of them were uh, dead by the time that I was writing the book. Um, it's also safe to say that in 1950, uh, given what most Americans saw as the Soviet threat, many of them didn't object to the idea of providing information that they thought might help the United States um, kind of survive World War III. Many of them were um, fairly patriotic, uh, and if not explicitly patriotic, they weren't necessarily um, opposed to that kind of environment, that they, were, that they were on board for it and generally saw what the US government was doing, particularly as it was talking about this language of scientific freedom, as a positive good. Um, so they didn't necessarily have to be convinced. Um, and a lot of them weren't asking a lot of questions about uh, expensive, lush conferences that suddenly popped up at places like the Bellagio. Uh, they would go and they would um, have a wonderful time and uh, they would say, hey, this was really great. Wonder who paid for it, huh? And then they would go back home. One of the really interesting bits of the book for me was the way that you outlined very carefully how the CIA funded these, what we call liberal organizations of intellectuals, um, including the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, which of course had J. Robert Oppenheimer on the executive committee, among other very notable names. And then aside from the funding issues, had some very close relationships um, with other foundations and organizations like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, which may have been you know, a different type of relationship, but still quite, somehow involved. Can you tell us more about this and about how this came to happen and, and what ended up happening with that? Sure. So the Congress for Cultural Freedom is probably the most famous of the CIA's uh, fronts for what's known as covert cultural diplomacy. Um, the CIA turned to private partnerships for a few reasons. Uh, one was simply staffing. In 1950, it was still a young agency and didn't necessarily have enough people to do everything that it wanted to do. Um, but a lot of it also had to do with plausible deniability, that the government um, was looking to uh, fund private groups to do interesting things that perhaps wouldn't even have occurred to uh, the, the new people running the CIA. Um, and so the idea was that if you brought people close to the agency who they felt could be trusted enough, they could be trusted to say kind of anti-communist things, um, but maybe not trusted enough that you would tell them that the money was actually coming from the CIA, that you could trust them to kind of go out and be intellectuals. The um, intellectual premise of all of this, um, many people in government, it's as uh, strange as this may sound today, many people in government at the time believed that for intellectuals, particularly in Europe, that the choice between communism and liberal democracy partially had to do with intellectual creativity that um, uh, the American propagandist believed that uh, European intellectuals were primarily attracted to communism, not because of its claims to economic justice or uh, you know, justice for the proletariat, uh, but because it allowed um, a, a kind of a, a pure style of intellectual development and that they didn't trust the West because the West was too commercial. So part of what the CIA hoped to do with these programs was to assemble a group of kind of center-left intellectuals to show that there was a third way, that you could um, be sympathetic to democracy, you could be sympathetic to 
a gentler kind of capitalism, and you could still be known as a practicing intellectual. So the CIA particularly appealed to groups of center-left intellectuals in Europe, and a lot of them were scientists, and a lot of them were very excited about science, in part because of something that was happening in the Soviet Union with genetics, um, that I will not get into all of the details, but the very short answer is that something had gone terribly wrong with genetics in the Soviet Union. And if you wanted an example of something that looked like the state control of science under communism, the Soviet Union had provided that. Um, the situation in genetics wasn't quite as bad as the Americans said it was, but if you wanted to have a, um, an example of state control of science, here was this shining object that you could say, this is what happens inevitably under, uh, under communism. The science is controlled by state institutions, people lose their job, there is no freedom. So um, organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom would put together large cultural events, public events sometimes, where they would gather thousands of people and they would talk about freedom or they would talk about science and freedom. They would talk about totalitarianism and basically say, uh, science and the West or various kinds of cultural traditions under the West offer uh, scientists, artists, writers, musicians, uh, women's groups, labor, other kinds of freedom that simply aren't available under communism. I wanted to talk more a bit there about this paradox of freedom, which is that th we had these organizations and individuals which on their face seem to promote freedom of individual thought and expression and research and science and all of these good things, but then you scratch below the surface and you find that they've been heavily influenced or guided or funded or promoted by government interests. And to me, this is just the most exceptional paradox where by seeming to, you know, going to all this trouble to appear to be avoiding state controlled science, um, your book points to the fact that in many ways, you know, if it's not, even if it's not overt, we have this covert control. And, and that's a kind of a paradox, I suppose, in America at the time. Um, can we talk more about that? Because I don't I really know what the question it. is. It's just, I it's would love to talk more about this. It's a really interesting bit that you can really chew on for, for you know, months at a time. Yeah, well, whether you call it a paradox or a conundrum or a central contradiction, uh, the central message that the United States was promoting in a lot of its cultural diplomacy was the idea that individuals are not controlled by the government, that uh, individuals operate freely from the government, that they are uh, kind of not beholden to organizations in that way. And of course, this is a problem for diplomacy, which is fundamentally a concept that is about advancing state issues. Um, and so in science, even more so than in the arts or some of, some of the other fields, um, you have the central problem of that you ca actually can't have government-sponsored conferences saying we're promoting the idea that science has nothing to do with the government. And this is even aside from the fact that it is a ridiculous claim to make about science in the United States during the Cold War. Uh, science in the United States during the Cold War, despite this language of freedom, had a closer relationship to uh, particularly defense agencies than at any other, you know, any other time, maybe except for during the Manhattan Project. So this enormously close relationship but it's all being promoted as the actions of individuals. So you have all of these overbuilt relationships that are about uh, uh, private-public partnerships, 
Uh, sometimes they're known as, as pass-through organizations where you have elaborate funding models. Other times they're just, um, they're kind of quasi-governmental organizations like the, like the National Academy of Science, uh, which has a congressional charter, but it's a private organization. It elects its own members. Um, and organizations like the National Academy, um, they, they have these ambiguous names. Uh, people outside the United States aren't sure what to make of it. Is it in fact a national academy that is associated with the national government or is it a private body? Um, and so the United States was really looking for ways to exploit these kinds of misunderstandings and ambiguities uh, to really to play that game. And this became much more so after, uh, after 1960 when the United States explicitly um, endorsed a policy of, of really creating, uh, promoting government science through non-governmental agencies. Um, again, often through very elaborate funding channels. Uh, but again, the idea was always consistently to show that scientists were somehow separate from the government, sometimes even meaning that they were separate from other kinds of government controls. A, um, a, a fascinating example of this involves uh, issues with, uh, with North Korea and the, the People's Republic of China. Um, in the late 1950s, it was U.S. Uh, foreign policy that um, official representatives of the U.S. government uh, could not be at events that also had people from, that had representatives there from the People's Republic of China. And so when China wanted to start participating in more scientific meetings, this really created a, uh, another paradox or conundrum for the U.S. government uh, because the United States was officially supporting Taiwan. And so if the United States attended those meetings, if the United States sent its scientists to those meetings and created a stir about the presence of Chinese scientists, they would be violating their own claims about not politicizing science, right? They, the Americans would be the ones who would be politicizing a scientific gathering. So that wasn't an option. Um, the Americans could stop coming, but that might, cut off, that might cut off a channel to gather some scientific intelligence, given the ways that the United States hoped to use its international scientific gatherings. Or the Americans could just go anyway in violation of foreign policy, raising the question of, is science somehow exceptional to the rest of foreign policy? And if so, why? Why would you do that? Uh, why would the rules for science be different for, say, the rules for agriculture or economics or anything else? So. The United States never really resolved this issue very well. And, and at different points during the Cold War, it had different ideas about whether or not um, science should be exceptional to the rest of foreign policy. But what you do see consistently is this insistence on uh, arm's length relationships at somehow saying that scientists who are doing government work are actually doing it as individuals who happen to receive government funds, but somehow those funds don't matter for what they're doing. Uh, that they could be doing it anyway. It's just that that's how they happen to be operating. I think it's so interesting that when we talk about um, we, when we talk about these things, we're referring to you know government position. The CIA is doing this. The you know National Academy of Science is doing this. We're talking about these organisations rather than individuals. Yes. But we know that there's a very complex um, and an overt and covert relationship between intelligence and the scientific community at this time, even at that very personal level of the individual. And something that really got me, and I'm going to read a bit from your book. Um, so 
this this section I just um, I, I really thought was quite relevant for scientists even today. Um, get the glasses on. So it says, why were mainstream US scientists, with the exception of the anthropologists, so unperturbed by the reports that so many of their venerated non-governmental institutions had ties to the CIA? Human beings justify their actions in many ways, and the historian who speculates on the motives of the dead does so at her peril. Still, Rabinovich's comparison of support from CIA funds with military research dollars is instructive. In the post-war United States, the vast majority of US scientists over the course of their careers had received research funds from one branch or another of the federal government. Now, the reason I wanted to read this, this little section and point to it is that one of the complexities of this story is it's about ideologies, but at a very practical sense for the individual, and I think that comes out so much in this book, it becomes about a personal question of what do I do in this situation? And as a historian, I'm really interested in the way that you approach telling this story in a way that gives sufficient weight to the individuals, the organizations, the structural elements and the ideological elements at play. Because as you say, so many of the people in this book are dead and you can't necessarily speculate as to the whys and wherefores of their actions but you kind of have to engage with that. Yes, and um, this is a book very much about disillusionment, uh, about my own disillusionment with, with the actors uh, in, in the book. Um, I had written a lot about science in the Cold War, and up until about, I would say, five to 10 years ago, a lot of the story in the United States was that uh, very few uh, scientists who were employed at universities spoke out much against uh, Cold War military, you know, security restrictions, uh, spoke out against uh, any number of civil liberties problems that resulted during, um, during the Cold War, or that they weren't even very much involved in civil rights issues, because to get involved in any kind of politics at all was basically an end to their career. And so the few who did, who spoke out, were, were rare, and that they were heroes, um, and that uh, any kind of uh, organizations like Pugwash, um, which is the group that you mentioned, which I will set that reading up for you in just a minute, but that organizations like Pugwash, which were involved in disarmament, that these uh, scientists-led uh, fairly elite organizations were really where we needed to look to find inspiration during the Cold War, because they were the voices that were speaking out. And um, the, the distressing thing of writing this book was the dawning realization is that most of the scientists who most vocal, most of the elite scientists who uh, most vocally spoke out in these, these spaces were often very much involved in uh, covert cultural diplomacy or doing work abroad. You mentioned Oppenheimer, who of course uh, is very well known as one of the, the victims of anti-communist kind of witch hunts during the Cold War when he lost his security clearance in 1954. Mm. But Oppenheimer was very much a cold warrior when it came to uh, cultural diplomacy. And he was a useful figure in that way. So I wanna set up the passage that you read just a little bit because mm. it's, it, um, it, it's a little later than a lot of the things that, that we've been talking about. So that passage uh, is referring to 1967, 1968, 1969. Uh, which was after the CIA's covers had been blown in 1967, 1966 and 1967. So in the United States, um, most intellectuals were engaged in a reckoning about what it meant 
to be working with these kinds of cover organizations. And what that passage is getting at is, well, and scientists were too. So Pugwash, this disarmament group, when you start to learn more about how uh, covert cultural diplomacy works, Pugwash starts to look a little bit more like maybe a little bit Congress for Cultural Freedom-y. It has all of these uh, elite people. It's bringing together uh, scientists from East and West. Um, it's providing certainly opportunities for intelligence collection. And although I've had a, I've, I've struggled to find the exact paper trail, um, they definitely received at least a small donation of about $3,000 from an organization that was associated with the CIA's elaborate funding mechanisms. So some of the Pugwash's members had reason to wonder, uh, was Pugwash also a CIA front? Um, and so this passage that is referring to kind of reckoning with that. And the, the very short answer is that most of the scientists involved weren't that concerned. And they said, well, even if we did get a little bit of money, nobody told us what to do with it. We were in charge of our own fates. Uh, they might have, I'm not even sure that they wrote us a check, but if they did write us a check, they had no say. So they're using this language of academic freedom, of scientific freedom to say, um, we control our interests, we control our words, we control our actions. Uh, to say that, that it doesn't matter in, and in ways that made it challenging for them actually to see how their partnerships with government officials actually constrain their choice. Pugwash is a particularly um, challenging one to, to grapple with because in Pugwash you can see um, the scientists consenting to having uh, fewer options. Pugwash really started out as, a, as an organization for nuclear abolition. The, the, uh, the scientists involved were thinking about what would a world look like without nuclear weapons. And what you see is that by the late 1950s, the Americans are working much more closely with the government. And they're not entirely wrong on the idea that if you were looking for nuclear treaties, ultimately, the government was going to have to sign that. And so they were trying to figure out um, what was the most that the government would accept? But when they had opportunities to accept, say, a testing moratorium or a test ban, they would step back and say, well, I don't know that the government would go for that. So maybe we shouldn't do it. And so you see the Americans saying, well, we're not gonna do anything that's going to disrupt our relationship to power. And they become more interested in maintaining their relationship to power than in their actual goals, their, their original activist goals. And it took me much longer than it should have to realize, um, you know, how vast the, the scale of activism was that didn't involve scientists. When you look at um, various peace movements and various uh, disarmament movements across the globe that were not led by scientists, that didn't premise their effectiveness on their relationship to power, that they could make much more radical claims than these scientists who were so deeply embodied in the state in so many ways. And so that passage, and in some ways the book as a whole, is really about my trying to understand what it means to um, spend all of your time writing about and studying people who rely on their proximity to power, how that constrains their activism, how that constrains their political choices, and how the people who are involved in those actions come to not even see those as choices. They actually see it, come to see their actions as being apolitical, as being non-political. Um, and that, that really is at the heart of this book, is thinking about uh, what's at stake 
when people make these claims that science is apolitical, it, it means a lot and it, it, it uh, is enormously important for our world. I'd like to finish this podcast recording by reading from the last page of this book, Freedom's Laboratory. The judgment of history is fickle, but from our contemporary perspective, the only moment from which we can write, it seems clear enough that the United States won the Cold War. It did so both by embracing the idealistic concepts of freedom, democracy, and self-determination, and by waging violent military, paramilitary, and economic campaigns. The past is a complicated place. Recognizing the inherent contradictions in historical actors' behavior can be politically liberating, a necessary first step in uncovering a usable past. Is there a role for liberatory science in foreign relations? Can understanding scientific freedom in the widest possible terms help us to articulate concepts of the public good that depend less on demonstrating the superiority of the American way of life and more on fostering a truly inclusive, collaborative international approach to knowledge of the natural world? But by definition, foreign relations and diplomacy advance the interests of a particular state. This was the fundamental fallacy of arm's length cultural diplomacy during the Cold War, and it remains the fundamental fallacy of the more recent and recently thwarted push for science diplomacy. It is not possible for individuals to participate in informal diplomacy or personal diplomacy without advancing systems of state power. The United States, unfortunately, is not the only country whose leadership has embraced racism, misogyny, xenophobia, and crony capitalism in recent years. The rise of extremist anti-democratic movements across the globe has reminded people everywhere of the temptations of power. With the prospect of hate-based states, the moral questions of the Vietnam era have once again bubbled up to the surface. Should an ethical person work within a corrupt system with the hope of facilitating change or at least mitigating harm? Or is all cooperation a form of collaboration? Scientists' professional identity does not grant them a free pass from these ethical dilemmas. Scientists like economists, doctors, lawyers, and politicians have choices to make in the ongoing struggle for freedom and equality. The political choices that scientists make today in their lives and in their work will affect our global society for years to come. May they choose freedom, but may it be a version of freedom that encompasses freedom and justice for all, not just the few. And I wanted to ask, what do you think when you look at the world today, and I know this is dangerous to ask a historian, but if anyone's qualified to have something to say on it, I think you are. When you look at the world today and you think about the role of science in public life and science in policy and politics, I mean, what does it look like today and, and how do you see it having changed or not changed from what you were writing about here? In an odd way, I am encouraged um, because I think that, um, particularly scientists in the United States for, for a very long time, um, they continued to rely on this, this language of science being apolitical, that science has no politics. Mm. And that language was effective during the Cold War and is no longer effective. So as science has come under various forms of uh, attack, if one wants to use that language, um, scientists 
lacked a language to um, talk about their contribution to the public good, to talk about their uh, relationship to making American society better. The language would generally be, well, but science, science is like this, you have to take care of science. And that, that was simply no longer, no longer compelling. Um, and when power is on your side, uh, when things are going well for you, it's sometimes harder to see the way that power constrains your action. Um, and so, of course, many scientists, of course, science has been political throughout the post-Cold War period. If you look at an organization like the Department of Agriculture or the EPA, uh, they have long been making decisions that are about defending various, you know, various aspects of, of U.S. state power. Uh, but particularly, say, during the Obama administration, it was easier for scientists to say, hey, we're allowed to do our own thing here in U.S. federal agencies. We're not controlled by the state. Um, and I think what the, the change in administration has done in the United States, it just made it crystal clear to everyone that that was never the case, um, that science has always been political, and that uh, you know, scientists have no, no choice in this. It's not as if scientific objectivity is somehow going to save scientists. Um, and I think, you know, scientists are really learning that um, they need to be able to speak the language of what their values are and what their, uh, what their desires are, and that they don't have to leave those values um, at the door, that they can really uh, come to the table as, as with their full beings. And I think uh, thinking about climate change is a, is a really perfect example. Um, Thinking about climate change is such a perfect example because, um, you know, when we see the effects of climate change, uh, sometimes scientists have said what we really need to do is convince people of the science, right? But even if you don't know about the science, you can see the effects of climate change already in low-lying islands. You can see uh, the vulnerability of uh, black and brown people and low-income people to um, stronger, more damaging storms to hurricanes. You can, you can see the emergence of climate refugees. And a scientist can fight that as a person, not just as a scientist. So you don't simply have to uh, ask for more funding for your institution in kind of a non-political way. You can say, this isn't right. You can say all of us have a right to live. And people, you know, people have a right to, uh, to expect that their homeland isn't going to be flooded every month. Um, and we should fight for that now. And we should think about ways to to protect people, um, even if that means that you're even if that means that you're politicizing science. Audrey, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. If people would like to um, follow you or find more of your work, where should they look? Well, they can follow me on Twitter, where I tweet at. Uh, uh, at Cold War Science. Uh, and I also have a newsletter called Never Just Science uh, that is a free newsletter. Uh, it's not quite weekly, uh, but it's uh, mostly weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, uh, where I talk about the relationship, between, the relationship between science and history and politics. Brilliant, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Space Junk Podcast. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And of course, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Hanmer.